Again, let me welcome you to Independent Presbyterian Church. I know some of you didn't make it in for announcements. I just want you to know that I am glad that God has seen fit in His most holy, wise providence to bring each of us here this morning. And those aren't just words. I really believe that to be the case because that's exactly what Scripture says is taking place. And, and I personally take great comfort and joy in that belief. I'm also reminded this morning as I look out that as we gather, we are the living proof of the ongoing fulfillment of God's answering of the high priestly prayer in John 21. You'll remember there Jesus prayed, Father, make them one as you and I are one so that the world may believe that you sent me. And I believe that this church is but one answer to that prayer. For you see, every time we gather, we are reminded that it does not matter if you are male or female, white or brown, rich or poor, if you're feeling up or down, if you are a suburbanite or urbanite, working in the city or outside of the city, Republican or Democrat, progressive or conservative, fixed in your thought or searching for answers, as long as Jesus Christ is both the center and the circumference, the sum and the substance, the basis and the boundary of all that we ever hope to be, then we can be a living picture of what it means to be in Christ, bound together, one Lord, one faith, one baptism one with each other as we are one with him. And in fact, that's what I want us to consider this morning. What does it mean to be what our text is going to call the body of Christ? If you will, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's okay. There are some in the pew racks in front of you. Let me encourage you to take those. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find our text on page 959. I'm going to be reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12 and going through verse 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on the parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, 
all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, it's an often overlooked and taken for granted privilege we have to have your world word held in our hands and spoken in our hearing. For it's here in your word where we find all we need for life and for godliness. It's here where we discover how we may grow as your children. It's here where we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, marveling at your gracious love, your wondrous works, your faithfulness to a faithless people. And it's here where we read and remember all the promises you've made, all the promises you've kept. And it's here where we find strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We ask that in your goodness, you would help us to not be distracted, disinterested, unaffected, and unfazed. Help us to be clear in our thinking, loving in our speech, sensitive and inquiring in our listening, and ready to be obedient to your truth. And Father, as we do each time we gather for worship, may we boldly ask that you would speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. I took one year of Latin in high school before my teacher, Mrs. Bates, strongly encouraged me because of my giftedness or lack thereof in the language of antiquity to try my hand at another subject. I struggled mightily in Latin, but there are several Latin phrases that I remember or can still decipher when I see it. One is this, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Thirteen letters to be included on the great seal of the United States, originally used in reference to the concept that out of 13 original colonies, one single nation emerged. And a phrase that by official act on February the 12th, 1873, became the unofficial motto of the United States and was ordered to be printed on all coins from the U.S. Treasury. Children, if you don't know what coins are, ask your parents and ask your grandparents following the service. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. It would also be just as fitting as the heading, the likes of which you find in most Bibles, like the one that I read from, sitting above the pericope, like our text this morning, to give the reader an idea of what the author is covering in that particular section. That phrase, that idea, very much summarizes the thoughts of Paul in these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just for context, what we have in the book of 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter, or at least the second letter that Paul has written, the church in Corinth, which he helped start on a second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9, Paul makes reference to a first letter which he sent, but of which we have no copy. The, the purpose for this particular letter is to address reports that he's heard from people who have visited Corinth and to answer specific practical questions that he's received in letters which have been hand-delivered to him. And our passage this morning falls between two other very familiar passages. 
Leading up to our passage, we have a discussion surrounding the Lord's Supper there in chapter 11, a passage that Sean or one of the other ministers refers to on the first Sunday every month as we gather as a church to experience the Lord's Supper with one another. You regularly hear one of us quote the following, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Immediately following in chapter 13, Paul begins a discussion on love, a passage that I would dare say has been memorized, cross-stitched, and quoted about as much as any other passage in all of Scripture. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. And then sandwiched between those two texts, our passage In all three portions of this letter, Paul is addressing a fundamental dysfunction that is occurring in the church. The people in the church of Corinth are fractured. They are split up into these multiple factions. And it's showing up around the communion table. And in addressing the issue, Paul gives them a visual picture of the church. And then very forcefully, he says, one of the ways that you will know that Christ has changed your life can be seen in how you relate to one another. And that is through your love for one another. But notice what he says in describing the church. Out of many parts comes one body, e pluribus unum. Verses 12 and 13, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. The body, though easily distinguished by its many parts, is nonetheless a unit. It's one. And Christ is a unifying factor. For in one spirit, the the Holy Spirit of God, we are all baptized into this one body. So whatever you thought you were, or whatever you think you are, if you are a Christian, you are part of the body. Your background, your nationality, your race, your tribe, the school from which you graduated, if you graduated from school at all, whether Jew or Greek, your socioeconomic status, your class, your social standing, your your upward or downward mobility, your connected network self, or your isolated loner, desperado, go-it-along, entrepreneurial self is no longer your primary identity. If you are a Christian, you are then united to Christ. Therefore, you are part of this body that Paul is describing. You didn't get to vote on it. You don't get to ignore it. You are, Paul says, part of the body. Now, I don't want to scar anyone this morning with flashbacks, but misery loves company. And maybe you remember growing up and watching your local CBS or PBS station, and maybe you too were often captivated by that show, Captain Kangaroo. And that recurring character on the show, Slim Goodbody. Anybody remember Slim? Slim had that 1970s curly perm hair and a skin-toned bodysuit with muscles and the body's organs painted on it. 
So as a kid, you could see on the outside of the body what you normally couldn't see. All those muscles, all those organs that make your body work. You see, and you know this, it's not just the seen parts that make up our body. You know that there are parts of your body that are not seen that are just as fundamental, if not more so, to your ability to function and to live. And that's Paul's point. You are what you are as Christians as the church, we are a body, many parts, and some may be more seen than others, but every part of the body is working and functioning together to be the church. That's the obvious meaning, at least to us. But there's also a not so obvious meaning. From the fifth century BC forward, from about the time of Plato onward, when talking about political empires, they would often use the term body to describe it. In other words, Paul is also employing what we would often say is kingdom language. This part shouldn't fight against that part because we are the extension of the king and therefore we work together for the good of the king. And the same is true here in what Paul is saying. We are the physical expression of Christ on this earth. He is now at his father's side. He has sent his spirit to dwell among us and to dwell in us. And we are now his body on the earth. His kingdom going forth is dependent on us being about the mission of his kingdom. The early church would have picked up on that illustration. When Paul talked about the the different parts of the body coming under the head, which is Christ, this empire, this kingdom language, And the movement and expansion of Christ's kingdom being dependent on the body, just like, say, the expansion of the Roman Empire was dependent on the different parts of the body politic, the different parts of the empire working and marching together for expansion. Same is true with Christ and his universal church, which means the same is true with independent Presbyterian church. One expression of Christ being on his throne and reigning is seen within our community and neighborhood as IPC continues to be about the mission of Christ and his kingdom. As we participate and arise to read, as we volunteer uh, with Recess, the ministry we have for, for special needs individuals and their families that meets once a month on Friday nights, when we send short-term mission teams to Scotland, to Tanzania, to Poland, to Greece, to Puerto Rico, when we engage with our neighbors as we live and work throughout our community, as we minister in Christ's name, going outside of this building on mission, we show ourselves to be part of the body of Christ. Look, not all parts of the body can go as far. Not all parts of our body are in positions to financially support. But some can, and we work, and we move together as this one body. That's what Paul is saying. So now that we understand the the multiple facets of Paul's visual illustration, let's bring our attention back and focus on the body as understood in in a physical human body. How is it? that the body is built or strengthened. It seems to me that in these next few verses, verses 14 through 20, Paul begins addressing those who are on the outside, if you will, of the body kind of looking in. For instance, consider verse 15. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Think about that for a second. 
Paul is talking about an individual who is, he's already made the point, who is part of the body, but doesn't feel part of the body or valued as part of the body. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. Just because one may not feel as though they are not as much a part does not make that true. Now, Paul doesn't deny the feeling. He doesn't say, well, that's just silly. You shouldn't feel that way. No, he instead is exhorting the readers to see that their feelings, as valid as they may be, their feelings are actually betraying them. Notice how he does it. Look at verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, each one of them, just as he chose. You are who you are. With all your gifts and talents and personality and characteristics, you are vital to the body of Christ. Extroverts and introverts, old and young, men and women, boys and girls, those with one foot out of the crib and those of us who feel like we've got one foot in the grave, athletes and academics, pilots and plumbers, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, hear me say, hear Paul say, but most of all, hear God say unequivocally, you, yes, you are a necessary part of the body of Christ, whether you feel like you are or not. God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he desired them to be. Do not let anyone ever try to convince you of anything else. And don't convince yourself otherwise either. God says you are vital to the health and the well-being and the functioning, living, and breathing body of Jesus Christ. But it's interesting then. It seems to me that Paul then switches the focus to those who are on the inside and how they view those on the outside. Now look at verses 21 through 26. I'm not going to read them all, but again, listen to the first few. Paul says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, what's it say? Indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable we bestow greater honor. Indispensable. It's a pretty strong description. What does it mean? Paul is describing something that you cannot live without, even if you think you can. Something that is indispensable is absolutely necessary. Food, clothing, shelter, water, all of those things are necessary, are vital, are indispensable for one to live. And Paul is saying to us insiders, you think that those people over there or out there that you don't think are way up on your priority list, they're not only important, they're necessary. They're vital. They're indispensable. We are more than happy to tell people to come and join us because we know we have something to offer them, the gospel, which we do. And it's beautiful and necessary and glorious. But doesn't the same gospel that we offer to others, doesn't the gospel, doesn't this passage also tell us that they have something to offer us as well? 
Maybe that visitor that either sat beside you last week or is sitting behind you today. Maybe your next door neighbor. Maybe that new coworker was put there by God, not for what you can do for them, but because in a real gospel sense, God knows you need them. Do you realize that they are instruments of God's grace indispensable to you? Look down your row. Not rhetorical. Okay, literally, look down your row. I want you to take in who's beside you. And then I want you to think about all the people who are not beside you. I want you to notice the room that we have. Maybe instead of wishing and hoping that people would come because they need the gospel, which they do. Maybe you and I need to think about all the indispensable people that God has put in our lives and we need to invite them to come because we need them. Too often we focus on the other's need of the gospel and not our gospel need of others. Part of realizing and modeling what it means to be a body is recognizing our gospel need of other people, some of whom will be very, very different from us. That's what Paul is driving at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We often consider Paul's instructions in light of the negative, right? I cannot say to someone, I don't need you. But how many of us move past the negative of I don't need you and skip over the indifference that comes next of, well, I'm not against you being here to the gospel positive. I'm in desperate need of you. You see, I think part of creating a culture of the gospel of grace, a part of bodybuilding, if you will, is the proactive approach to our own need for understanding grace. So for instance... Just to name a few. Why do we need the poor and downtrodden as members here at IPC? To remind us that we're all needy. Why do we need the immigrant and the sojourner among us? To remind us that this is not our home. Why do we need the physically challenged? To remind us that we cannot stand, much less walk under our own strength. Why do we need people of other races to remind me that there are no segregated tables in the new heavens and the new earth and there shouldn't be around our table either? Why do we need those struggling with addiction to remind me that I too am clinging to others than Christ, that I too often try to medicate my way out of the pain that comes from a living and broken and fallen world? Why do we need children to remind me that my faith is not like one of a child? Why do we need the elderly to remind me that I put away my childish things? You see, I'm not only given the admonition that I can't dismiss people like this. I also cannot be indifferent towards them. My posture has to be more than, hey, come if you want. The gospel and being part of the body of Christ moves me to see that people like this are indispensable to me because I need to understand my own need better we find it much easier to believe that we are the indispensable ones but that others are optional we seem to be content 
with either who and what we have been or who and what we are and forget that God is in the constant and necessary business of changing us. And one of the ways that he does that is by the very people we think are dispensable and disposable. This body, this glorious body of Christ needs to continue to strengthen and to grow. And we do that in part by realizing just how needy we are. I do not have my life together and neither do you. Can we stop pretending that we do? We need these indispensable individuals of God's grace to us. So can I give us homework this week? Will you do it? Can I challenge us not to simply be men and women like James describes who look into a mirror and see themselves and then forget what they look like? I want you to think about our body. I want you to take notice of those around you that God has sovereignly placed in your life. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your boss, the person who cleans your home or cuts your yard or the person whose home you clean or whose yard you cut. And I want you to think about how God is using them in your life to change you, to strengthen you, to grow you more and more like Christ. And I want you to think about how much you need them. And I want you to think about how much our church needs them. And how God could use them in and among us. And then, and here's the hard part. And then you go tell them. And then you invite them. Not because of what we have to offer. But because of how much we are in need of them. That's new for me. That is new for me. And maybe that's new for you. I know full well it's new for us. But if we're going to grow, if we're going to grow stronger, we can no longer view ourselves as independent. We're interdependent on Christ as our head and on one another. May God continue to build our body for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that this would not just be something that we think about in the minutes of this service, but Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take these truths revealed to us through your word and that you would drive them down into the very marrow of our being so that it so becomes just part of who we are and in our DNA that we realize your work in our lives through the others that you've sovereignly placed around us. And I pray that you would move us past our indifference and that, Father, you would move us to invite people to come and be a part of this glorious body of Christ. We need them. Lord, we need them. So, Father, encourage us to such a task. And then will you strengthen us as your church and build us as one body, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one baptism. Yes, for the benefit of our church, but ultimately for your glory, 
for you alone are worthy of such praise. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As part of our service this morning,